Um, A book recently came out called The Problem of God. It was written by a a pastor named Mark Clark, which he identifies the 10 biggest problems that our culture has with Christianity. These are the 10 biggest hurdles that if somebody is going to even understand Christianity, let alone believe in Christianity, they got to deal with these 10 issues. These are also going to be the, probably the top 10 issues those you disciple, your kids, and your grandkids are going to have to face head on if they are going to understand the Bible and then go to love Jesus Christ. And what made it on the top 10 of, uh, of his list is a chapter called The Problem of Sex. And so here's what we do at Village Church. Uh, we're teaching through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And uh, periodically, because Genesis 1 through 11 poke at so many hot subjects in our culture right now that intersect with Scripture, um, what we're doing is every once in a while, we're, we're pulling out a week or two, we're calling them So What Sundays. Um, so what? How does the Scripture speak to these major issues. So two weeks ago, we talked about the issue of gender. If you're curious on what we said about that, you can download that at our brand new website, by the way, which is up and running at vcob.org. But you can find that there in our media section and on our homepage. Um, And we would love to be able to teach and train those we disciple, our kids and our grandkids, of the biblical view of these issues. And so today on our So What Sunday, we're going to be dealing directly with our with sex and the sexual relationship. Um, so I want to tell you what my goal is this morning so we can just be really clear on what I'm trying to accomplish in opening this, the relevant scriptures on this subject. <clears throat> Number one is uh, I want to give every one of us a shared vision for sex and our sexuality. Um, I want us to come under the banner and the authority of God's word because there are so many competing narratives about what is true and good and best about sex, right? And so what we need to do as a church is we need to continually reinforce God's vision for sex. And then here's what we have to do. We have to arm ourselves with vocabulary and ideas that are better than the world's because they're God's so that we can hand them off to those we disciple and to our kids and to our grandkids. Uh, I want to give you categories because as you disciple people, um, I can tell you that no other issue has caused more brokenness in those I personally disciple and anecdotally from what many of you have shared with me than broken sexual relationship with their own bodies, with the other sex, and even with the same sex. This is a a very catastrophic issue. So we need to be armed if we're going to really make healthy disciples who submit every aspect of their life under the authority of God's word, we need to be armed. Some of you might be single and you you might be thinking, I'm single, this doesn't apply to me. All the more, if you're single, you're, if you are a follower of Christ, your objective should be to disciple younger men and women. And so if that is something you're serious about, you need to also arm yourself with compelling vision and vocabulary around this issue so that you can serve the next generation and those that you disciple. Um, This is also gonna uh, serve as sort of a checklist for those of you who are married. Uh, When you think about your own relationship with your spouse, um, we're gonna give you some things that you're gonna have to step back and say, okay, in my personal life, am I in line with God's vision for this as far as I'm able? And then finally, what I wanna do is just encourage you. Um, I wanna encourage you, I wanna encourage your marriages, I wanna encourage you in your singleness, I wanna encourage you um, to build you up uh, so that you can think biblically 
growing and flourish as a human being in this area. Sound good? Um, now, in Mark Clark's book, um, he talked about four major views of sex. And I'll put these on the screen so you can see them. And the first view is this, that sex is an appetite. Now, this is a purely secular, humanistic, atheistic, evolutionary perspective on sex, but it is the controlling worldview in your children's public edu education and in almost every aspect of media that they personally consume. And basically it says this, that sex is as natural and normal as hunger, but like hunger must be indulged at your own whim and desire. That there are no really rules and boundaries for the most part, but it is just an evolutionary human appetite that has been put into us by happenstance and millions or billions of years. And it's been given to us to procreate our species and it's more just an evolutionary appetite. It's amoral, it's not good, it's not bad, it just is. And so our obligation is to feed our hunger. Uh, this implies actually something really significant that I want you to understand. It implies that your body is disconnected from the concept of a soul because a thoroughly evolutionary, secular, humanistic view of life in your body does not take in consideration a soul. Uh, as a, a theist, as somebody who believes in God, you should believe that we are both body and soul. We are material and immaterial at the same time. And what you do in the one profoundly influences and affects the other. Well, uh, well the vast majority uh, of Americans in this culture are not working from the that assumption in terms of how they live. They're living as if what they do in their bodies doesn't have a deeper impact on their souls. And they wonder, why are they so sad and depressed when they abuse the area of sexuality? Um, you'll hear phrases like, it's just sex. This is one of those phrases that is the afterthought um, that sex is just an appetite. It's an evolutionary human impulse that we have to satisfy. Uh, view number two, sex is God. Uh, it is the highest pursuit that will bring the greatest joy in life. When you believe sex is God, you believe it is your obligation to pursue your sexual desires, I want you to hear me, because erotic freedom and erotic expression are the greatest acts of human worship. They are your identity, they are your God, they are your greatest human pursuit. And your impulses, your desires are who you are. They are satisfying them the greatest and highest pursuit of your life. And do we not see this as a narrative that is sweeping across our culture? The answer is, of course. You are who you desire to be with sexually. And of course, the scriptures just ring through this and say, no, you are who God says you are. And God has said very specific things about these, these issues. And so we see this as a very concerning, but I wanna to read to you Philippians chapter three, verse 18. It talks about what happens when we view uh, sex as God. Here's what Paul says to the Philippians. For many of you, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears. Now he's talking about Christians who have walked away from the faith. They have given their lives over to their impulses. They've seen their desires as God rather than submitting under the authority of Jesus Christ. And here's what he says. They now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Why? Because they know better. They know what God's word says and they have said, no, we're gonna go satisfy our own impulses because these impulses, they are our God. He says, their end. He doesn't say this as a threat. He just says this as an observation and a fact. And he's saying this with sadness. If they continue to walk this path, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. This is a phrase that refers to their appetite. Their God is whatever their body wants to do. And if they go down this path, that their end is gonna be their destruction, and then here's what happens. We glory in our God, do we not? And if your God is complete erotic freedom, then you're gonna glory in all of your vast erotic liberties and rights, are you not? And this is the very natural course. When your God is your impulses, when your God is your appetite, you glory. And then ultimately, your mind is just set on earthly things which always, always fail us in the end. Here's what this implies. It implies that your body is a commodity to be used for my worship. This is, this is what a lot of adolescent boys This is how they view sex. Your body is a commodity for my worship, and I worship the God of sex. And so we have to understand this, that this is a very strong impulse that is inside each one of us, um, largely because of the culture we're living. Now here's the third category. Sex is bad. Now there are two primary areas, my personal perspective, where um, this view arises from. Number one would be some kind of religious fundamentalism. Um, By and large, evangelicals have to come to grips with the fact that our sexual ethic, communication, and training has not provided or produced generations who have healthy sexual ethics, okay? Healthy sexual practices. That there have been some major issues that we have been known for over a century for what we stand against rather than what we're for, as we said a couple weeks ago. Here's what I'm for. I am for every single being flourishing as image bearers to the glory of God. I want to see everybody I disciple and work with flourish the way God has designed them to function in such a way that brings God glory. And so what we find is a lot of people have had negative training because of oftentimes the church or cults that lead to this really sad view of sex and the sexual relationship. But there's a second reason why I think a lot of people have a really bad view of sex. And that is because in some of their, uh, we'll just say, primary defining um, sexual experiences of their life, especially when they were younger, they had incredibly damaging or wounding experiences. And these experiences, the, the idea of sex is a PTSD reenactment of those events, and it is a deep, deep wound inside of people. And so um, even when we talk about some of these issues, um, I don't actually look at number three so much with a condemning voice, so much as I, I, an empathetic one. After having worked with multiple people who have been broken because of things done to them, it's very hard to overcome this. Um, but as we look at pain and heartache, one of my goals is to rise above some of this and say, okay, the world has messed up all the good gifts of God, but what is God's view of this. That, here, here's a little one-liner. I think that for some people, when they're uncovering the scripture's view of sex, it's kind of a shocking concept for them. And here's what it is. We were sexual before we were sinful. That this reality transcends the fall and sin. That this actually is part and parcel with being made in the image of God is the desire, the impulse, the biology, the gender, all of this, hormones, 
that all come together and propel you to this end. Now, as we say that, I want to share with you what I believe is a much more compelling view of this idea of sex. And here's number four. Sex is a covenant gift. Now, if you're talking with somebody who only wants to indulge their appetite, is there any view of sex that is going to make them change their mind? No, not at all. Um, But if you're talking to somebody who's truly open-minded, who's willing to look at scripture, not just scripture, evidence, anecdotal evidence from all of the people in their life who have indulged in these worlds, who have made sex their appetite or their God, um, what you will find is that this is a much more compelling version, view, identity, understanding of sex. Sex is a covenant gift. So let's just look at these words, gift. We are designed and constructed, I love this, before the fall, for sex and pleasure as a gift from God for each one of us. That this was his design and it was his intention. Look at another word here, covenant. That God has designed sex, um, the very mind of God conjured up this idea to inaugurate a covenant in marriage. That, that this act would bind a man and a woman together, and, and there's a Hebrew word that's, that describes this, and the Hebrew word is ekad. And ekad, you're supposed to have like a guttural kad, I can't do that right now, um, Akkad means oneness. Now, it's used in various ways in the Old Testament. It's used to refer to the number one, but it's also referred to in this really beautiful way to refer to the absolute greatest pinnacle of oneness and unity. So God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one God. This isn't just singular in nature. It's singular in function and essence. They are one in the most intimate way God could ever be one. And so what sex does is it inaugurates a lifelong covenant by God that will bring a man and a woman together for life in this thing called marriage, which brings a cod. Now, I want to just pull back the uh, curtain for a moment. And uh, this is something that I, I just want you to see this. I wrote it out so you could get it. When you treat sex as appetite, God, or bad, it will turn on you in the end. It will turn on you in the end. But when you see it as a covenant gift... It will bless you. And for most people, for most of us in this room, we can look back on our lives. And for the majority of men that I know, when I say, what are some of the greatest regrets of your life? It is when they did not submit their sexuality under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They look back on their life and they think about all of their regrets on this level. I would say 80% of the men anecdotally that I meet with would say um, what they have done with their bodies sexually ends up being one of the greatest regrets. And what I want to do is I want to raise a generation of kids that don't have to live in this regret. I want to cast a compelling vision for them from a very young age about what is human flourishing and how they can thrive for the glory of God. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to fly because this isn't going to be like a negative Nancy sermon. Um, This is going to be a sermon where we can kind of cast a vision for you of what um, God's will and heart is in this area of your Life And my desire, again, is to bless you and to help you and to encourage you and to give you tools. Number one, in your notes, again, if you're taking digital notes, we have digital notes on our new website. And uh, if you download Adobe Acrobat Reader, you can get them on that. God designed sex to be 
Three things. Number one, the most powerful, natural, human experience. In the book of Proverbs, it's called a fire that is capable of consuming both your body and your soul. Do you not watch this when you look at the world? The answer, of course, Village Church is absolutely. Uh, uh, here, here is a, a powerful phrase I heard somebody say one time. They said, sex is never just physical. That is impossible. There is never a moment when you engage your mind or your body sexually when it just stays purely in the physical. It always impacts the emotional, psychological, spiritual side of you, always. There's never a moment when you get to engage something with this much strength and imbued power by God where we get to say it's just sex. The moment lust enters into your life, porn enters into your life, uh, sexual immorality enters into your life, it is always spiritual and you are designed in such a way that the two would never ever, ever be separated because this idea of sexuality is created and designed by God that when you enact the covenant of marriage, it binds you, body, soul, emotion, psychology, and then in progeny or kids for the rest of your life. It is meant to be this thing that sticks you together and that you are not supposed to separate. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or chapter 6, verse 18, I'll put on the screen. Here's what the apostle Paul says. Flee sexual immorality. And of course, we as a church, we focus on this. He's not saying flee sex. He's not saying sex is bad. He's not saying anything of the sorts. He's actually saying flee perversions. Flee things that are outside of the covenant usage uh, that brings a cod or oneness. Flee, run as far away. But then here's what he says. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. I, I want to draw your attention to something. I've, I've said this multiple times to you. Um, it's interesting that uh, in scripture, Paul says um, that we should probably be more afraid of sexual immorality than we should be of Satan. Uh, if you were to have a face-to-face with Satan, what does the scripture say to do? Stand toe-to-toe, resist him, and the devil is required, obligated by the spiritual laws of the universe to flee from you, right? But here's what he says with sexual immorality. Run as fast as you can. <laughs> it's far too powerful. It is far too strong. It sucks you in. Uh, When it gets its grips on you, it's not like other things. And here's what he says. Every other sin, right? All sin is bad, right? Don't get me wrong. But then he he actually takes sexuality and he plucks it out and he puts it into a different category and he says, all other sin a person commits, it's, it's outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, Um, whatever this is, that uh, sexual immorality, and I think what he's just talking about is sex in general, is that it's never just physical, it's spiritual. And unlike any other sin habit in our life, it affects us more deeply and more profoundly and it breaks us more personally. That that it, it is imbued by God with this much power. Number two, sex, God designed it to be the most unifying unifying human experience. Um, Andy Stanley says this. I appreciated, I appreciated this. He said, you cannot unone the oneness of sex. That it is uh, by God designed to be both physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, hormonal, on every level. It has all of these dimensions to it so that once you are bound to somebody, that there, it, it is a powerful connection. You can deny the connection. You can numb the connection right? But you were created by God to use it in such a way that it binds you to somebody, and this is how he wants it to work. It's like glue. Once applied, it sticks, but what happens when you rip it off? It does damage. But 
but it doesn't just do damage to your body when it comes to sexual morality. It does damage to your soul. Uh, it's like Velcro. Each and every pull degrades its strength. The point of sex was never to be haphazard or flippant. It was to bind a man and a woman together in covenant for life as a gift and as a blessing. That's what it was intended to do. Number three, it's actually, this might be a weird thought for some of you, the most gospel mirroring human experience. I wanna read to you a scripture here um, that at first glance you may be like, why is he reading this scripture? And then we're gonna uncover this. First Corinthians chapter six, um, here's what he says, Paul. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Akkad, that's Hebrew, but same concept in Greek. As it is written, the two will become what? One flesh, right? You see this oneness idea? Like this is the value. This is really important to God. But you know what? God never does things for one reason. Have you ever noticed that? There's always deeper meanings. There's always deeper levels. Like, okay, why did he make marriage? He made marriage so that the human race can flourish and we'd be happy, we wouldn't be lonely. And then we get to the New Testament. He's like, oh yeah, it's a picture of Christ and the church. Okay, well, why would God make something as powerful as sex? Well, the text goes on. Here's what it says. He's making a direct connection between the unity, the oneness of our sexual relationship and our relationship with God. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, I'll tell you a story. A few years back, I was doing premarital counseling with um, two, two non-Christians. Love doing premarital counseling with non-Christians. Love it, love it, love it. I'll tell you why. Because we tell them, look, you can do it with us, but we're gonna talk about Jesus the whole time, okay? We're gonna talk about sex for the glory of God, communication for the glory of God. I mean, it's just gonna be weird to you, but here's what I'll tell you. You won't regret it. Number one. Number two, you'll find actually functionally, um, we'll show you stats and anecdotal experiences that will show you, you agree with about 98% of what we're gonna say. And at the worst, at the worst, you leave with an actual real understanding of Christianity rather than the pop culture lies that you see out there. You can actually speak as somebody who has authority on the issue. How's that? We have never, ever engage, offered that to a non-Christian couple and had them reject it. Um, and so actually what we've also done, just a little like fun tip or interesting insight for you guys, um, most of the non-Christian couples that we have worked with have actually agreed, we never mandate this, but they've agreed to stop having sex before they got married. All of those couples, by the way, came back to us and thanked us personally because of the benefit that it had in their personal lives. That being said, I go up to this guy, and it was just him and I. And uh, I wrote down what I said to him because I thought it was hilarious. And I thought, one day, this is going to be a really good sermon illustration. Um, I looked at him and I said, bro, can I just, can I tell you something really weird? We talked about the theology of sex and why God made it. I read to him this verse. And I said, every time you have sex with your wife, I want you to hear Jesus saying to you, trust in me, I am infinitely better than this. And it was interesting because uh, for the non-Christian, I'm more than happy to put that thought in their brain. But it's interesting that God even talks about the sexual relationship as ultimately real, but also a metaphor for a deeper union than any of us could possibly imagine. It's almost like God was like, all right, when you guys get to heaven and you are unified with Christ, like permanently, you got rid of this body of flesh, what human experience could I design and could I create that might give them just like a taste of how amazing heaven is gonna be. 
And then God comes up with the idea of the sexual relationship. Isn't that interesting? And so I look at this guy and I'm like, look, every time you make love to your wife, Jesus Christ is screaming to you, trust me, I am way better than this. Trust me, I am way better than this. Number two in your notes, God commanded sex. To number one, inaugurate the covenant of marriage. We know this. We know this. Genesis chapter two, verse 24, therefore a man, he shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become what? One flesh. And so that God designs this to be the inaugurating event of a lifelong marriage for the glory of God. Number two, to continually solidify and strengthen our oneness in marriage. It's not just about inauguration. Now, let's be straight. I want you to go back, like, let's say 2,000 years, and you're the pastor of this church in Corinth, and you're reading a letter from the Apostle Paul, who's like the leader of all the pastors, and you get a whole chapter on husbands and wives' sexual relationship, right? I mean, it's pretty blunt, right? And so pastors, 2,000 years later, we're like blushing about sex. I'm like, literally 2,000 years ago, this pastor gets up and says, all right, married couples, let's have a conversation. Uh, God has an opinion on your sex life. All the kids are listening to it, and uh, here's what he says. Um, Husbands should give to his wife her sexual rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. And then he says this, do not deprive one another. Question here for you. Option or command? For what it's worth. Sex and marriage is a profoundly interesting, interesting subject. But here's what happens every time a married couple is with each other sexually. You are not just reenacting the covenant. You are continually solidifying and strengthening the akkad that is in you. Um, The sexual relationship launches a cod, but it is sustained regularly through multiple other things, one of which is a regular sexual life between a husband and a wife. And God cares about that. Isn't that weird? Like, don't you think God should like mind his own business, right? But he doesn't. He's like, no, I'm going to get into every part of your life. I'm I'm going to upset every area of your life, and I'm going to make sure that you know what I think about them. (laughs) He's invasive. Number three, to protect us from sexual immorality. God knew the fall was going to happen. Was the, the fall wasn't a mystery to God. And God knew that Satan was going to take the most powerful, pleasurable, uh, God-exalting, if you will, human experience and pervert it and corrupt humanity through it. He already knew this was going to happen. And so in, in kindness, he looks at couples and says, you're not allowed to deprive each other. Once you open this human experience, you cannot shut it off very easily. And so you as a married couple in the covenant of marriage, this is not an option for you. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, he says, do not deprive one another. Except, this is really interesting. Like, this is how invasive he is. He's like, you have to have a regular sexual relationship. And the only reason, the only reason you should stop is if physically, this is a, a given here, you're unable. That's a different category. I get that fully, right? Right? Or you stop to pray for a season. So if you're going to stop, you better come to me and tell me we're fasting and praying, <laughs> right? And uh, it's, it's kind of funny how he does this. Why? That you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is not meant to be an insult. It's a mirror. It's a reality. We lack self-control. The most self-controlled person in the world still has room to grow within self-control. Finally, number four. God commanded sex to fill the earth with godly children. 
Statistically, who's more likely to have godly children? Godly people or ungodly people? Godly people. It's a natural, statistical, observable reality. Malachi 2.15 kind of like cuts to the chase of some of this stuff. And again, God doesn't mince words. He says, did he not make them one, a cod? This, this line, by the way, that's coming up here is, is striking. With a portion of the spirit in their union. That this oneness that when somebody gets married, it's a man, it's a woman, and God's spirit is uniquely, personally with them. Now, here's what's interesting. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And this is a strong reference, by the way, to the sexual relationship and to marriage. And what was God seeking? Why did God make them one? Why did God command the husband and the wife to inaugurate their akkad, their covenant gift with sexuality? God wants kids, and God wants his kids to have kids, and this is the rhythm that God has put into the world. Now, something you need to know about this, because there is a question here, um, like what if we're unable to have kids? It's a real reality because of the nature of how sin in this world affects our bodies. That's very real. Here's what is assumed, by the way, in this physical procreation. What's assumed is that they're not just having kids for the sake of having kids, they're raising disciples in their home. And so whether or not you adopt, whether or not you foster, you take safe families in, or you have natural children, whatever it is, here's your goal. Your goal is to replicate Christ followers in this world. And one of the most natural and easy ways to do that is by having kids. And this is one of the desire and will of God in marriage. In fact, the very inaugurating event almost demands this result. Isn't that interesting? That the very act of sex creates children and it has not been till really the last hundred years where we had the option to separate sex from childbearing. And so for thousands and thousands of years of human history, um, this was the natural byproduct of marriage. You had kids. And why did God create all of it like this? Because he wants you to have children who love him, who have children who love him, and we replicate ourselves. The big vision and value here is as Christ followers, we replicate ourselves. We replicate disciples. And so you do this through kids, you do this in church, you do this through so many avenues. This is not necessarily um, saying to somebody that you need to feel guilty if you struggle with infertility. If you struggle with infertility, the demand on us to continue to replicate disciples does not stop, but we find alternate ways to do this. He goes on and says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Number three in your notes, God bless sex. God bless sex to do one, one major big thing, to build the oneness of marriage. Why? So that they shall become one flesh. Here's an interesting insight for you. Do you know what the first command to humanity and all of scripture is? Have sex. Now they don't say it like that, be fruitful. <laughs> and it's not, it's not talking about the garden, right? Uh, it's talking about having children, make love. It's interesting, when you think about the number one command, the number one thing God says to do, the first thing, he doesn't say worship me. <laughs> he doesn't say any of that. He says, have sex. Now, with anybody? Of course, no. There's only one woman on the earth, and he brings them together in marriage, and their sexual relationship inaugurates this, this marriage. Um, in marriage, God intends for a man and a woman to grow in oneness in four areas. Now, this last section is going to serve in, in one of two ways. If you're married, this is like a checklist for you. It's an opportunity to say, how are we doing? 
generally speaking, um, sex inaugurates oneness, but it is not the only mechanism that God has put into a marriage to preserve oneness. So I don't wanna just actually just totally end on the issue of sex so much, is that sex has a greater agenda, which is to bring a husband and a wife together in unity. And there are four big areas of unity um, that a husband and a wife are supposed to come together on and be on the same page. Now, if you're maybe dating somebody, um, you gotta ask yourself, do I want to grow in oneness, a cod, in these four ways with this person? And the first one shouldn't surprise you, um, that God is bringing us together as lovers. Um, Song of Solomon 5, 16. Um, this is Solomon's wife. This is shortly after their wedding night. And uh, she says this, his mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. And she says this, this is my beloved. In English, you may think this is just a term of endearment, affection. Nope, not at all. This is a thoroughly sexual word. It is dode in the Hebrew. There are different words for relationships and connection to people in Hebrew, and dode is thoroughly, explicitly sexual. And she steps back. She's actually declaring to um, a, a number of other women in this context, and she's saying, this is my lover. Now, here's the question for married couples. If able, do we regularly enjoy one another sexually. By the way, you're dating somebody. You gotta think to yourself, like this is a command of God to preserve the oneness of your marriage for life. Do we regularly do this and do I want to do that with this person if I should marry them? Number two, God bless sex to build oneness as friends. Same sentence, she says, this is my beloved and this is my friend that this idea of oneness is not just sexual, but it's deeply, personally relational. That sex finds its beautiful culmination when it is with a best friend for life in the covenant of marriage. This is my beloved and this is my friend. Here's the question for those of you who are married. Are we cultivating a loyal, loving, and enjoyable friendship? Are we cultivating a loyal, loving, and enjoyable friendship? I can tell you as a dad with young kids, this becomes actually one of the hardest things to do with the demands on your life of little children, whether or not they're your children or you're raising them or whatever it is. Many of you are, are um, taking lots of care of your grandchildren. It is very hard with needy kids in your home to cultivate a friendship. This is why the marriage checklist becomes really, really important right now. Um, forget about sex for a moment. Is she, is he my friend? And is this growing? When are your date nights? When are your together nights? It's very, very important to God. Number three, gardeners. Now, when, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a job, and their job was to garden. The vast majority of you in this room, I'm guessing your full-time occupation is not gardening. Gardening represents the mission that God gives to a family. And so here's what happens in Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over. And he's gonna talk about the land and gardening and their mission. This is Adam and Eve's really personal, specific job that God gave them. Every family has a mission from God. And that mission is usually found at the intersection of your church your marriage and family, and your job. 
Um, somehow all of those things can come together and maybe two of them intersect, but oftentimes you'll find that these very influential parts of our life merge together and we have a really specific mission as a family. If you're dating somebody, you gotta ask them a question similarly to this. Um, are we going in God's direction on the same road? Do we share the same mission and calling? I, I understand that you have a job and I have a career path that I'm pursuing, but big picture beyond that, do we have a, a common sense of mission together? Because if we don't, this thing just is not going to work. Those of you who are married, have your life started to go in different directions? Have your ministry started to part ways so that you're no longer connected in what you do? Do you have a shared sense of mission because your mission is her mission, her mission is his mission? Number four. God blessed sex to build oneness as family. We've talked about this already, but did God not make them one? Why? What did he want? Godly offspring. And so we're developing and we're growing physical and spiritual families. What, what was God really looking for here? Disciples from one generation to the next. That's what he's going after here. So um, I'll close, I want to close and read a passage of scripture from Song of Solomon. Uh, Preachers and pastors, I get it, it's weird, it's a hard subject sometimes. Um, I've found that the more directly we can speak on situations like this, the better it is for the people of God because we speak about it directly at home, do we not, right? We speak about it pretty directly with our friends for the most part, do we not? Uh, we should be able to have some blunt conversations in here. And, and so one of my desires is to speak about topics in scripture with the same weight that the scriptures give them, but also with the same transparency and clarity and unashamedness that the scriptures teach them. And so I'm gonna read you a passage from the book of Song of Psalms and I wanna make a point at the end of it that we'll, we'll close with before we celebrate communion. And uh, in Song of Solomon, there is this uh, sentence that comes up and the wife, uh, she says this before she's married and after she's married. She says this, I adjure you, and she's talking to the single women, all the single ladies, that's she's talking. I adjure you that you not stir up or awaken love, this is sexual love, until it pleases. And the whole book is, is given this, this direction, this catapult towards it is pleased in the context of covenant marriage. And so she looks at them and she pleads with them multiple times and says, ladies, 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 um, I'm just, I promise you, like I understand what culture is permitting, I understand all the things that people are saying, um, this is way too powerful to unlock too soon. And so the book of Song of Solomon actually um, gets uh, it's very clear in very poetic language. And in Song of Solomon chapter four, we get an insight into this couple's wedding night. Um, and the word of God has no words that are immense, but it's the very last sentence that I wanna draw your attention to as we get there. Solomon says to her, before they have made love, he says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, your friendship, my sister, my bride. How much, is, how much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Your lips drip nectar, my bride, honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed, meaning this, that he's declaring to her, you are pure, you've waited, uh, you, you have not given away your sexuality before our marriage. 
He says, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choices, fruits, henna with nard. If you want to know what this means, by the way, I preached a detailed sermon on this about a year and a half ago. You can go listen to it there. Nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices. Now she knew what this meant, by the way. You may not know, but I think you get the vibe that this is, this is special. A garden fountain, a well of living water, flowing streams of Lebanon. And then she responds and says, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, and blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. And now this is the awakening of her sexual love. And so she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now here's the question. Do you feel uncomfortable? It's weird, almost voyeuristic, peering in like 3,000 years ago on this couple's sexual relationship. But God took this and he, he like froze this moment in time and preserved it in his word so that generations of people could look without sin and see something really special going on here. After the wedding night is over, he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey and I drank my wine with my milk. They, he's looking back and saying, um, this is official. We've, we've made love together. Now this is where I think the last sentence here gets really striking. There is a voice that chimes in and the voice is none other than God. And God apparently is in the room. And here's what he says. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Isn't that interesting? That the Lord looks at this and says, this is good. This brings me glory. This is where humans flourish, right here. Outside of this, it will turn on you. But in this relationship, in this experience, God designed the genius mind of God, created all of this to bless you. And then I love this ultimately to give you a foretaste of whatever goodness you experience here. Jesus is infinitely better. My prayer for you is to encourage you, to equip you, maybe to, for some of you to like realign some of the thoughts and ideas and sexuality that have started to go astray, bring them back under the authority of God's word. But at the end of the day, as you raise your children and your grandchildren and you make disciples, may we never communicate to them that sex is an appetite, sex is God, or sex is bad. But may we train them through our personal examples that sex is a good gift from God to inaugurate and establish the covenant, but also to make you long for something even better, which is Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I know that as soon as we talk about this, it is fine to be idealistic on one level. But God, as soon as we cast vision, as soon as we talk about the ideal of sex and its purpose, everyone in this room very quickly realizes that we have fallen short. We have failed, some of us, so painfully. God, for many of us in this room, our failures are still with us today, palpable in this room with the man or woman or children or parents sitting around us. And Lord, there are some of us in this room who have been profoundly and deeply wounded. Lord, we carry the pain and the wound and the memories with us. And Lord, if we could just snap our fingers and have them go away all at once, it would be probably a great relief to many here. But Lord, as we see the discrepancy between your vision and our reality, I wanna thank you for Jesus. Because our sexuality 
is the clearest picture for so many of us in this room that we are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We need forgiveness and we need a savior. Father, I thank you that you gave Jesus and that there is no sexual sin too far off, too destructive, that the blood of Christ cannot cover 100%. And so, Lord, as we come to this communion table, I pray your Holy Spirit, now in the gap between vision and reality, would start to bring encouragement, hope, healing, and forgiveness. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.